It's fake. I say done work, waking up, pay me up, nine to five, five to one, one to eight thirty in the morning. Give me five more for my me time. Pray it works. Give me five more for my knees times. I don't even need rhymes. Supply rhythm is given. Equations, X's, I'm letting the sentences run. This is KDPI 89.3 FM Ketchum. Good morning. This is Ellie Newman on its relationship, and my guest today is Madeline Levine, Ph.D. Dr. Levine has been an active psychologist for the past 30 years, an educator and co-founder of Challenge Success, a project at the Stanford Graduate School of Education, and a New York Times bestselling author. She's a frequent keynote speaker for schools, parents, and business leaders, and has come to Sun Valley to speak on Parents Under Pressure. Thank you for joining us today. Thank you. So, Dr. Levine, I wanted to start with what brought you to Sun Valley and what you'll be discussing tonight. I'm going to be speaking at the community school, um, and I'm going to be talking about the kinds of pressures that are on kids that we have a tremendous amount of data on that says that kids' levels of depression and anxiety and substance abuse and just plain unhappiness are really intolerably high and that the most often cited reason for that by the kids themselves is school. I want to take a look at parenting and school and what's causing so much anxiety in both parents and kids. And that was a topic that you covered primarily in in largest scope in your book, The Price of Privilege. What led you to writing that book? Well, I'd been a psychologist at that point probably for about 20 years, and I live in Marin County, and so um, the kids I saw were incredibly um, unhappy and from affluent families and were different. There was a change in the kinds of kids that I was seeing. Um, And I started talking to other people around the country, other colleagues, saying, God, I'm seeing a lot of these kind of wealthy kids who are quite depressed and have very little internal motivation, not really involved in their education um, in any meaningful way. And all of a sudden, people in different parts of the country were saying, yeah, I'm seeing the same thing. And at that point, there was literally no research on the children of uh, affluent families that at-risk groups had traditionally been considered um, kids, under-resourced kids in inner-city neighborhoods. And in 1999, the first study came out on um, how affluent kids were doing both emotionally and in terms of education, and they were doing startlingly poor. And out of that, there was more research, um, more discussion with uh, colleagues, and more attention to the kind of kid I was seeing who, for all the world, looked like they shouldn't be unhappy, involved parents, very involved in schoolwork, um, and yet they were quite depressed and anxious, and um, it sort of just didn't make sense. Were you surprised by what you were seeing? I was very surprised. I mean, I'd been practicing for a couple of decades. I was very used to seeing unhappy kids. There's always a percentage of kids who are depressed or have an anxiety disorder or abusing substances. But this was a very different group of kids. These were kids who were doing well in school, who didn't look like they would meet any of the traditional criteria uh, of depression. So, for example, one of the things that we always look for in a depressed kid is uh, poor grades. First thing I'm taught in graduate school. But these kids didn't have poor grades. Somehow they were managing to keep their grades up, and that's partly because looking good and performance was so incredibly important to them that even though they were depressed, that they were able to maintain them. We have some research 
from Stanford that shows that kids, even with active suicidal ideation, are able to maintain, maintain their, grades. their grades. That tells you something that's in the study just in and of itself, right? Well, it's, huh, it, it, it's actually really scary because it means it's much harder to identify kids, you know, and, and I mean, I'm crisscrossing, crisscrossing the country in different communities, and what I hear over and over again, unfortunately, around a suicide or a drug overdose is, oh, we had no idea. And at first blush, that seems like, what do you mean you had no idea? But I think it's true. I think it's harder to identify those kids now than it used to be. And do you think that that's a, a change in the environment and the dynamics at play, or is it something that you just hadn't been in, involved with earlier? Do you think it's something that has, has changed in, in the 20 years you've been, at that point, 20 years you've been in practice? Yeah. I, I, there's no question to me that this is a change. Um, and I think what we're seeing when the research first came out showing that, for example, seventh grade girls in affluent communities had twice the rate of depression of the general population of adolescent girls. I think the feeling was, well, there's some blip in here, but it'll get better. Um, and then as they followed these kids, they found that by the 12th grade, they didn't have twice the rate, they had three times the rate of the general population. So it didn't get better. Actually, the trajectory was that it was getting worse. And now those kids are being followed in college. I'm from California. Uh, the, the state universities have declared themselves in a, in a state of emergency around uh, counseling services because they're so flooded with uh, requests for counseling services. So I don't think we're seeing this getting better. I don't think it was always the case. I think there has become... Um, a paradigm out there about what it takes to be successful in the world that is um, very, very damaging to everything we know about child development, which matters a great deal to me as a, as a psychologist, but it's also detrimental to everything we know about learning. And although it may be the strong happening the most in these families of higher income, it certainly seems to be the case of all socioeconomic levels. I know when your book first came out, you were sort of some criticism, oh, this is just about, you know, a small group and who really cares about them, and you explain why we should care. But the truth is, it's not about that small group. I mean, you look at people who are just barely getting by. I have right. a friend, you know, they're pretty much at assistance level and her daughter has been on suicide watch a couple times in the last two years. She's on antidepressants. She's on her fourth counselor. Right. So, you know, two things. You have to be really careful, I think, about um, deciding that it's all the school pressure that's causing these things. I mean, it, 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 there's correlation for sure. Um, depression's up. We can expect to see more suicide because that's part of the underlying foundation of being suicidal as a teenager. So I, I think that I think we have to look very carefully at that relationship. Um, there's no question that relationship exists, and there's no question it exists at every level because the price of privilege was supposed to be this tiny little book. Um, I think it had an initial run of 12,000 copies or something. It's, it's in like 20 printings. It's sold you know, a couple hundred thousand copies. So it's not just speaking to really it's affluent. Yeah, yeah, no, it's not a print. <laughs> and you you took five years off what you thought would be months and have been speaking and traveling and that's consulting. Exactly right. that's, some, that's something large. Uh, this is Ellie Newman on KDBI. We're going to just take a short break and we'll be back in a moment.
All right. This is Ellie Newman. I'm here with Dr. Levine, and we are talking about uh, teaching your children well and the price of privilege, her two latest books, and many other things connected with those. And I want to just talk a little bit about um, the, the perfect storm that, that you mentioned sort of comes together in the culture of, of affluence and affluent families. Materialism, pressure to achieve, perfectionism, external measures of success, competition versus collaboration, and disconnection versus emotional warmth. And I'm wondering, sort of, did you have an aha moment at some time during your practice? I'm sure they all didn't come together in your mind at <laughs> once. But where you started saying, there's something going on. There are different factors here at work. And there's a dynamic that's, that's being created and then a cause and effect. So I think, um, please call me Madeline, all by right. the way, Ellie. Um, uh, it, the Price of Privilege opens with this story of... Um, as I'm starting to think about what's going on of this young girl who comes to my office, um, beautifully dressed, uh, it's an emergency appointment. She drives up in a in a late model BMW. I was just going to say, you seem to have a lot of those. I was so impressed and in awe. You're, you know, through the book, you say, well, I, I you know, I took this call, I took that call on the weekend <laughs> during the next week. You know, these kids are already off to college, and you're still taking their calls and and having them sneak in onto your couch. It's yeah, fabulous. Because, you know, I, I love working. You got to love teenagers. You got to love the energy of teenagers and the the compelling intensity in which they're really trying to figure out their lives. And so, I mean, I still in contact with kids I saw 20 years ago. They're um, very lucky to have you. Oh, well, that's sweet of you. I'm very lucky to have them. It's kind of a two-way street. Anyway, so this yeah. young girl comes in, and she looks great. You know, a depressed kid is supposed to, like, be ragged, and their clothes are supposed to. She doesn't look like that at all. I can't, for the life of me, by looking at her, figure out what's going on. But as the session moves along, she's wearing this cutter T-shirt. I ask her to pull back her sleeve once I feel comfortable enough doing it. And she took a razor and hid incised the word empty into her arm. And she was my aha moment that these kids for all the world could look like they had everything. They could look good. They could sound good. She comes in and she says, hi, Dr. Levine. It's a pleasure to meet you. It's like it's not a pleasure to meet a shrink when you're 16 years old. But her social skills were great. Um, except she was empty inside. And, you know, there were many reasons for that. Some of it is maybe she had some depression in the family. But she was also under enormous pressure to always look not good. It's not about looking good. It's about looking perfect, which is kind of a nutty idea because none of us are perfect. And this idea of kids being straight-A students and great athletes and – putting together, you know, water treatment plants in Rwanda and and volunteering in the community. We all have multiple roles, mother, daughter, sister, colleague, um, radio announcer, a psychologist. We're not straight A's at any of them. And um, this idea that kids should be absolutely great at everything is misplaced. In fact, in real life, most of us go to our strengths, not our weaknesses, um, And I think she was just emblematic of this new kind of kid who could look good while they were suffering tremendously. 
And how do you see now, uh, after having studied that for a long period, the interplay between the material advantage and the parental pressure? And not just parental pressure, but pressure from from the rest of society, their peer group, from every kind of media. And you're, you had written two earlier books on the influence of media right. and on violence. So I'm sure that helped into your after your aha moment of, okay, the same thing's happening here in a different way, right. you know, in a different topic area. Right. And, and you're absolutely right. So the biggest change actually I've seen in the environment since I started this is when I started, this was all about the parents. Um, for for many reasons, uh, the economy was bad. People, I just I have three sons. They've just been recently launched out into the economy. It's a bad economy. Um, there's worry about whether or not you know they'll get jobs, whether or not jobs are being taken by pulling kids from overseas, whether they're taking the the seats in our universities. There's a whole bunch of economic forces at work. Um, I think there are a whole bunch of sociological issues at work, like. Parenting now is often parents who were brought up in the 70s, very high rates of divorce, want to make sure that their children have every advantage when they may have felt disadvantaged at some point. There's a whole bunch of things And I want to come on. back to that later. We'll talk on the rest of the issues first, but I want to make sure we come back to that because that is typical that people who have been successful are successful now. They did have hardship. They did have not the perfect situation, and yet part of that sort of buoyed them in striving to be successful. And right. so it's sort of interesting that these parents want to take all of that away. Right. It's a big – first of all, you can't take all of it away because life isn't like that. And second of all, in the process of doing that, what's to so totally misunderstood is the point you just made. It is exactly in the process of learning to deal with unhappy events that one develops resilience, that one develops coping skills, that one develops exactly the kinds of things you need both as a person and to go out into the world. And to be happy, to feel to that happy. you have stretched and grown and you're right. capable and you've achieved and you've, you're, you're authentically sort of exhibiting yourself and your skills and abilities. Right, and you can manage. I mean, this really simple idea of talking to kids and saying, do you feel you can manage? And most kids will say no, which is why we're seeing very high rates of problems in the colleges because these kids are buffered, 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 and then they get to college. Mom's not there, dad's not there. They're not buffered, and a lot of them really fall apart. So let's talk a little bit about the, the material advantage. So the kids, I, ha I, I struggled throughout the book and then afterwards with the price of privilege, the price of privilege. Is it really the privilege, you know? What is the part? But so explain and to me not, where you came about with, with the element of the material advantage. Right. So it's, it's definitely not the privilege. And it's definitely, from my point of view, it's definitely not the money. It's not about the money. It's about a value system that I think is frequently part of having advantages in life. Um, and a value system that has been communicated to kids that they are... Um, that, that their um, functioning in the world is a direct reflection of their parents' capacity to be a good parent. So that there is this kind of bleed between parents and their children now. You know, we don't have big communities. We don't have safety nets. We don't – nobody's knocking on your door and just saying, hi, what's going on? It's okay, they are here. I just have uh, to okay. say <laughs> that I moved here from San Francisco and I would lock my door. And my uh -huh. neighbor came over one day, and she knocked and knocked, and I opened the door, and she said, Ellie, your door was locked. And yeah. I said, yeah, my door is locked. It is no longer locked. Yeah. And she just comes in, and when I have friends visiting, they're like, oh, my gosh, your neighbor? She just walked in. Right. So, so there are places, luckily, right. where 
I'm learning. That You're lucky. Really wonderful. You're lucky, but. It, they're unusual places yes, in, in, in just my... Just because we're here in the valley, I have to plug us. Right. Well, I'm ready to move. I mean, people... <laughs> I just want to know what everybody drinks yes. here because it's such a uh, warm and welcoming community. Um, but I don't know. I don't think it's about um, having money per se. I think there is a kind of materialism. Look at the shows that the kids watch, you know, My Super Sweet 16 where some 15-year-old kid gets all pissed off because she got a Jetta instead of a Mercedes. You know, the popular culture of you are as successful as what you make. And that's just an extension of a reliance on metrics. You're as good a student as your last grade. Maybe, maybe not. That your um, value is outside. That of your yourself. value is extrinsically measured. And, and what do you think that the, is sort of the definition of the value of money? Because that also seems to be a little skewed. That it really isn't what the money can buy. That it can buy, you know, uh, comfort and security and good schools and and travel experiences. But that in and of itself, it has some some other value. Well, in this system. I, but what, what we're talking about, I think, are two slightly different things. Is mm-hmm. affluence, which may or may, you know, there was this crazy case where they let this kid off and then it was reversed who killed four people and his defense was affluenza. Oh, and right, they, right. They, yeah. You know, I mean, we're in big trouble when you can kill people and say, I, I didn't learn any values because mm-hmm. my family had money. But, but in you know, that's sort of a popularization. I don't think it's about affluence. Mm-hmm. I think it's about a set of values around materialism that so, are so, so toxic. So explain the difference. Well, affluence is your paycheck. Um, so there are people who have a very high paycheck uh, who work very hard to make sure that their children know how to be good people, how, how to be at, at simple things, how to be at the supermarket and thank the guy behind the counter um, as opposed to rolling your eyes and saying, hurry up. Um, and kids see, no matter what any expert like myself tells you, the biggest impact on a kid is they watch you. And if they see you rolling your eyes because your service isn't fast enough, then they have learned the value about materialism, about having money, um, versus not having money. And and that is not restricted to people who make a good paycheck. There are people who behave very poorly who make average amounts of money or lower than average amounts of money. But I think that it's easier um, when you have a lot of money to expect to be served, um, to sort of have expectations of your children. The American dream has always been your child does better than you. Well, if, if, you know, if you're a VC or if you're a CEO – it's going to be damn hard for your child to do better than you do. And in my office, kids take one of two tacks. They either work like into a frenzy of exhaustion or they fold their cards because they don't feel there are other options for them. And I think it's really important And what has been that your experience that their parents want for them? You know, they, they clearly are not worried, I think, about – the kids ending up on the street, the, the sort of mega wealthy right. and living in the societies, that's really not highly likely. Right. It's pretty assured the kid will not even be unemployed, whether they go to any school, right. ra- you know, not necessarily even the Ivy League, but any college, right. they're, they're going to get a job. Right. Um, so what is the concern? You, you know, it's, it's a tough um, sentence, but I think, but here's my sentence. I think that that because we have so little community outside of Sun Valley or in most places, 
um, because we feel so on our own so much of the time that our kids become surrogates for our own success. And to the extent to which our children are successful, we feel okay about ourselves. So when I give a talk, um, the questions are always things like, uh, my my child's taking five APs, Dr. Levine, is that okay? When I've just spent an hour and a half talking about why it's a bad idea, you know? <laughs> Those are the kinds You're of very patient. <laughs> I'm getting less patient uh-huh. to tell you the I'm truth. Probably good. Because the data's out there. The data is out there. Every community I go to um, has something from a glimmer to real tragedy around some of these issues. And does it take some courage to change it? Absolutely. And I'm really at a point of feeling like you have the information. Either you do it or you don't. Um, and there are communities that I will not go back to because I've been there so many times, and you know, this, I'm not the only one. There's five or ten of us who go around with the same message. It takes a lot of courage to say this community or this culture may think that, that the epitome of success is uh, high grades and a Harvard bumper sticker on my car, but I don't believe that. I'm going to protect my child. It, and, and by the way, I want to be clear. For the right child, going to Harvard's a great thing. But that is a tiny number of kids. And I think we, we pay enormous attention to, like, the top 5% of kids and the bottom 5% of kids. And the 90% of kids in the middle are absolutely ignored. I must have gotten a dozen emails. There was an article in the paper, an op-ed, on how small the incoming Brown class was, class of Brown was. And it's like, I'm tired of those articles. That's a tiny group of people. And it if you just read the paper, it's as if everybody's kid is going to Brown or to Harvard. They're not. Most of our kids aren't. And there was also, I think, just a recent study as well that came out that was talking about your child is much better off being at a Mal- second Malcolm tier. Gladwell's yeah. book. Yeah. Oh, right. That was fabulous. Yeah. David and Goliath. Fabulous. Yeah. You're, but you're, but you're, people seem, these studies come out, people hear it, and yet it doesn't seem to sink in or make any difference on people's choices and behaviors and so that So that is incredibly frustrating um, and very contrary to the role of mothers historically. So historically, we are like crazy when it comes to protecting our children. And we've known for a long time, you go and you take your child to get a vaccination. I had polio as a child. Um, my child gets a polio vaccine. I'm as happy as can be, and my child cries for a minute. I'm still as happy as can be. Um, they spray a chemical in my neighborhood on apples when my kids were in school. We're out with picketing. No toxic apples for our children. Yet we've created a toxic environment, and people are too afraid to change. I think it's an issue of courage. I think it's hard. Um, and I think I think the data's out there. And if people don't change, I think we can expect to see a fairly impaired group of kids, or as my friend Wendy Mogul is fond of saying, the biggest class action suit in history when kids understand how they've basically been abused. And what was your path like coming um, first to psychotherapy, becoming deciding to become a therapist, and then ending up in Marin and, and dealing with a very special population. Uh, I'm smiling because I'm I'm older than you are, and um, I was never supposed to be a psychologist because um, when I went to State University and I was a smart student, I graduated Phi Beta Kappa and all this kind of stuff. And I said to my guidance count, my counselor, I'm interested in medicine. And she gave me an address and told me to go speak to them. And it was the School of Nursing. Um, and, I ju- and I didn't know to think that there was anything wrong with that. I just knew I didn't want to be a nurse. 
Um, and, and here's the role of a mentor in somebody's life. And so I became a teacher and a social worker, worked at Mount Sinai Hospital in New York for a couple of years, and my supervisor, a gal named Sue Fine, we're talking about 30-some-odd years ago, calls me into her office. I worked there three years and said, I'm not rehiring you, and I'm beside myself because how am I going to pay my rent? And she said, you're too smart to be sort of dinking around with these jobs. I want you to go back and get a Ph.D. She was one of the most important people in my life. It was the right time. It was the right time. Um, Working-class family, there wasn't that kind of aspiration. The aspiration was to get a notch up, which is like the American dream. And so I became a psychologist. I also became a psychologist because I was a teacher, and I was a very bad teacher. Of course, I was teaching in the South Bronx, which was a hard place to be a good teacher, but I was a very bad teacher, but I used to love to go home with the kids after school and sit at the table with them and their mom. And why, why do you think you were a bad teacher? I was a t- take my word for it. I was a t- <laughs> because dis- discipline is not my forte. Uh-huh. Listening and talking came more easily, and, um, and it's a good indication of um, how the kids who are most under-resourced and who need the best teachers in this country get the most unprepared teachers, Mm -hmm. which is what I was. Um, And so then I became a psychologist, um, ended up marrying um, my husband, who's an ophthalmologist, and we ended up in a neighborhood with um, a lot of kids who had well-known parents or a lot of money. And that wasn't initially my client base. It was just kind of the regular, you know, middle class. And over time, more and more, it became um, these these upper upper middle class to wealthy kids. And, and the landscape in San Francisco and the, the yeah the really changed, changed very right. much absolutely over the last the last twenty years. Right, especially with the tech boom and stuff like mm-hmm. that. It became a, you're right. It became a different place. So your latest book focuses more heavily on, on sort of, it seemed, the how-to. Right. And uh, I'm guessing that after five years of all of these very frustrating questions, you thought, okay, I'm going to put it in a book and they can read it. Right. Um, so a few of the key insights, uh, assist on a, insist on a good night's sleep, discuss homework policies with the school, encourage play and quality family time, be clear on the differences in ability and interest between you and your children, focus on your children's character and values rather than grades, and confront the real issues as to why the, each parent is is pushing their kids and where their buttons are. I, I paraphrased it all, so I apologize. Very good. So, so um, have you got that sort of figured out now? After the that you've been you've been out now touring on that book for a while. You know, I I had a um, I've been out the last few weeks, and I had a great question a couple of days ago from a woman who said to me, "I've read your books and I've heard everything you've had to say, and this is the third lecture of yours I've been to. Tell me the one piece of information that I need to know to raise healthy kids." I, I just want to, yeah. Could you just give me the sound bite or the elevator <laughs> right? pitch? I don't want to read the book. I don't really want to have to think about much. Could yeah, I have no, that? no, no. She had done all oh, of that, and it. it was a very because I first sort of blew it off, saying, "Well, yeah. you read the book," but I, I actually had to think about it, and this this is actually what I think. So I have been incredibly blessed with three incredibly different kids, a very analytic, you know, get the right answer kind of kid, these broad strokes, a very creative kid and a kid who had a little bit of a learning disability and was a total hands-on learner. And I really did consider that a blessing to be able to curl up between three different pairs of eyes and see the world entirely differently. Um, and I'm convinced, and thank God my kids are doing incredibly well. They're out in the world. They're working. So I've got to interrupt because you tell a great story about being woken up at dawn, at dawn by, by your my son. Creative I think son. you're talking about to that, watch the sunrise right, with him. That, and you get up. That's right. And I got up 
with obviously the verbal, the one who's now a lawyer, that's easy. He's like me. The really creative kid, yeah, I, I go to sleep at two in the morning, be woken up at four or five, whatever, it was very hard. And the hands-on kid, the kid who's most different from you, I had to take sign language classes. And blacksmithing, who knew that a blacksmith even existed? But I considered those things opportunities, and I really did not consider one more valuable than the other. And I think, I think if you can honestly believe that each one of your children have a set of gifts um, is a blessing in their own way. And if we can value their skills, and I, not just the narrow, not just the A student, but the student who is curious about the world, the student who um, loves to touch things, the kid who, uh, I always tell the story of one of the kids on my son's baseball team who we put out in left field because he was so weird because he liked the plants better than playing ball. And we all thought he was like, weird. Anyway, he ends up being the head of botany at one of our major universities. If we can expand our sense of um, what's valuable, what contributes to the world, and see the world through our children's eyes, at the end of the day, that's the greatest gift I gave my kids. Um, And they all followed their natural paths. And I, I actually think we spend too much time worrying about our kids' deficits with tutors and courses and um, and not enough time cultivating their strengths. Because in real life, we go to our strengths. We don't go to our weaknesses. So to spend hours and hours... And then we'd be truly evolved if we could choose what we wanted to do, even if it wasn't what we were best at, but we really, really liked it. Right. That's right. <laughs> we'd, we'd be in utopia. That, well, that's right. And and so to to make a kid feel badly because they're not a great math student. I, I, I will always have a, a call somewhere along the line after I've spoken from a mom who calls and says, you know, I know I shouldn't really make this call, but my daughter has four A's and a C. And I don't even have to ask her why she's calling. I know she's not calling about the four A's. She's calling about the C. So I just say, all right, what's the C in? And the mom will say, it's chemistry. And I'll say, so does she like chemistry? And the mom says, no, she really hates it. And I'll say, guess what? She's not going to be a chemist. So tell me about what she likes and what she's good at. My, my sister told me she got just recently got a T-shirt that said, I didn't use calculus today. She's actually <laughs> quite good at calculus, so it's even better that she's wearing it. But, right, you know, right. we don't all need to know how to do calculus. That's right. That's exactly right. So that leads me just into, which I love when this happens, right into um, your definition of, of the authentic self and sort of discovering that. And um, I also want to touch a little bit on, on a couple books. One you mentioned, Drive, in, in one of your books. And the right. other you didn't, but I kept thinking of it, The Element. And it seems to me what oh, you were yeah. just Rob, talking Ken about, Robinson's Ken Robinson. Yeah. Um, and so, so what we really value, you know, as families or as a culture, and um, these parents are saying, you know, continually it seems when you ask them, they just want their kids to be happy. And I'm wondering what you sort of discovered is what's true around that. You know, and the, there's sort of the extreme situations where the one father, yes, he wants his kid to be happy, but, you know, he can't really stop using cocaine because it's it's not a big deal and, and right. it serves a purpose in his life. Right. And so I would reframe that in, in, and hope that I don't sound harsh. And that is, um, it's not just that I want kids to be happy. And I, and I don't think that's that that's what everybody says. I'm not sure that's the goal. I think the goal, because nobody's happy all the time, I think the goal is has more to do with having kids who are resilient, um, with having kids who um, feel that they have something to contribute, um, with having kids who are good spouses and 
parents in their turn um, who find things that really interest them. And I'm very careful about the word passion. I used to use the word passion a lot. Um, and then it just became one more thing that parents worried about. So I talk about pa- having a passion. Going home and drilling their kid around. That's What's right. Your passion? Well, that's exactly, that's exactly right. You know, and, and uh, the, the phone call, which is, I'm really worried my child doesn't have a passion. And you go, how old's your child? And they say, four. <laughs> and it's like, life's their passion. So now I just talk about interests. Um, I'm mostly an adolescent therapist. Adolescents are not going to be happy all the time. I don't want them to be happy all the time. Any mom who says to me, and I hear it often, I can't stand to see my child unhappy. If you can't stand to see your child unhappy, you're in the wrong business. Part of your job is to make sure that your child has some experience with unhappiness so they know how to deal with it in life. So I think that um, I I, I like um, competent and fulfilled better than I like happy um, because I think happy leads us all to the let me protect my kid from unhappiness, which I think is a mistake. But I think mostly our kids watch the way we lead our lives. I think we need to be really clear about values and contradictions. So I hear all the time, health. Health is so important to me. Really? How many hours of sleep does your kid have? Six to seven, the average high school kid. Uh, well, that's interesting because the American Academy of Pediatrics says nine hours and 15 minutes for optimal brain development in And they've been school. saying that for a long they've time. They've been saying it for years. And, and those are studies that are uncontroverted. And it makes you crazy think, well, and yet there has really been no adjustment on that. There has been no adjustment on it. And what a parent will say is, well, what, what am I supposed to do? Tell my child to stop doing homework? And the answer to that is yes. Mm-hmm. That's what you're supposed mm-hmm. to do. Mm-hmm. It's not popular, but yes. No, and it's not. And I don't want to it's make it easy. sound like it's easy. It's not, it's easy. not easy at all because it means you're going to fight with the kid mm-hmm. and you're going to fight with the school. And other parents. And other parents. But, Ellie, I really believe, having done this for years, that the majority of parents actually do get it now and do understand that some of this is very damaging to child development. And Unfortunately, the voices of people who want more rigor and more homework and, you know, don't back off on the kids tend to be louder. And I think it's time for the rest of us to get a little louder. They tend to be louder, and they also tend to not be generally people who have done the research, Mm -hmm. which is frustrating because Mm -hmm. I'll hear the rants and I'll say, but have you seen this study Mm -hmm. or have you seen that or have Mm -hmm. you gone over to Harvard and talked to an admissions person or someone in the school that actually can explain to you that they're teaching on collaborative learning methods, on project-based learning. They want creative thinkers. Right, right. And, you know, I got to tell you, probably a third of my speaking now is at business, which to me is hysterical because I can't balance a checkbook. And what, what, what does American Express want me to talk to them? And I'm talking about to C-level people because they're unhappy with the quality of the kids that they're hiring. They don't feel they're collaborative. Well, how could you be collaborative if you were the sun and the moon rose around you? And you were competing with everyone else. I mean, and there were right. stories in your book about kids that wouldn't help other people or they'd give wrong answers because right. you know it was right. it was either me or you that was going right. so to get the so they're competitive they're not collaborative um, they're entitled um, they they don't have you know, grit is the popular word that you know it mm-hmm. comes in cycles they don't have the kind of perseverance um, and they don't think outside of the box and it's really interesting because when you ask then well where are you getting your kids from it's from the same 12 schools mm-hmm. well you're going to get a certain kind of you keep going to the ivy leagues or the selects you're going to get right Ouch. right <laughs> and and then if you're talking about god i need somebody who's really thinking outside the box and very resourceful you know go to the state university 
simplicity, the kid who's working two jobs and helping the family put dinner on the table, you want to see grit, you're looking at the wrong places. So we have to triage from a much broader group of kids and understand the different strengths they bring. All right, this is Ellie Newman on It's Relationship. I'm here with Dr. Madeline Levine. We're going to take a short break and be back in just a moment. All right, we're back. This is Ellie Newman on It's Relationship, and I'm here with Dr. Madeline Levine. And we're going to move into talking a little bit about community. Um, first, uh, Dr. Levine, Madeline, your relationship to your community, which I think must be very interesting. <laughs> As you walk around, I think, you know, everyone bows and is, is thrilled to see you. And, and then just kind of uh, community and its effect on pressure to succeed and sort of defining success. So first, sort of with your, your relationship with community. I'm laughing because I'm not sure that everybody bows. I mean, I more to the point, there are some people who think I am very wise, and there are some people who think I'm um, nuts. <laughs> I'm nuts. And particularly some of the highly, highly competitive schools um, are not so happy with me. Uh, so I have been brought into practically every school in San Francisco and in Marin, but there are schools that wouldn't have me for love or money because they – believe that what I'm doing is lowering the bar, which is hysterically funny for me. So do you think they really believe that, or do you think they don't want the boat rocked? Well, they don't want the boat rocked, but I think they honestly do believe that this is about, you know, letting kids do whatever they want. And the idea that I'm lowering the bar is a joke because, you know, I've told you I'm a PhD, I'm Jewish, I'm from New York City, my husband's a doctor. I mean, it is... The bar is high. (laughs) Right. It is not an anti-intellectual house by any means. Um, But what I'm trying to do is get kids to work actually at their optimal level of of performance and, uh, and of interest and of engagement. Every study we have says the most important thing a child can be in terms of being a lifelong learner is engaged. Not just getting the right answer, not filling in the bubble. Not being concerned about the score, but really liking and being engaged in and, what and they you, do. And you know, you look at the the research that that was done in Drive, and then put that together with the Element. And if we have people doing what they are most skilled to be doing and most interested in doing, right. we'll have a rockin' society. Right, we, we will. But we have we have to move away from um, uh, the glamorization of wealth. Um, I was walking down Fifth Avenue, and I think I was in front of Gucci. And in the win- there's a big window, and in the window is just a, a uh, shoe on a platform with a single light shining on it. And it's a kind of iconography. I mean, it is like what you would see in a church. And I like nice things. A lot of us like nice things, but we don't, we don't want to be worshiping at those things. We We want to make sure that our kids know that there are – Many other things in life, and and one of them really is service, which is a big issue, I think, that kids have to understand that there is something for them to do outside the threshold of their own life. And and that's not – other than padding a resume, um, that's not something kids think about. And they used to. When I used to treat teenagers because adolescence is – That part hasn't changed. Well, well, it, I, I, that, the, that that adolescence is a stage that we all go through, and it has certain challenges and changes, and right. But but what has changed is um, it used to be a time when kids were really concerned with right and wrong. Mm-hmm. It's the period of eth- ethical when that part of the brain is actually that's developing. right. And and now I don't hear kids talking about climate change or about the tornado in 
not tornado, or the, the crises in Haiti or things like that. Kids are not talking about that unless they, they can get credit for it. And it is part of developing a value system that is should be flourishing in adolescence. But it can't if you know, there's 24 and hours a in a day. And a sense of connectedness as well. Connectedness, connectedness to the environment, right. connected to the society, and connectedness to the future. Right. And to something besides yourself. You know, if all you're connected to is yourself, you're a narcissist. And, and it seems, too, if you wanted the shoe just because it is so fabulous beyond measure, that that might even be okay. It's fine. It, but to have it because by wearing that shoe, you then right. have value. It seems to be where you're really starting to get into trouble. Right. And and that, you know, clothes have always messaged uh, who you are and what your st- cars have messaged, those kinds of things. In in a context, it's always been about keeping up with the Joneses. There's always been some of that, but we haven't been willing to sacrifice our children before to those kinds of notions. So can we talk a little bit about the difference that you describe between the authentic self and the false self? So there's always been a notion of a false self um, around for a long time, and we know that people with a false sense of self tend to become depressed in uh, middle age. Um, so the false self, as I see it, is the part of a, of a kid that knows exactly what the environment wants of him uh, or her and is, is happy to put that on as their self. I just had a girl in my office, bright kid. Um, she wants to be a doctor. She takes Adderall to study for her uh, test. She comes in. She's very proud. I got an A on biology again. Great. How'd you do that? She says, you know me, I stay, I study with Adderall, and then I forget it the next day. I don't ever want that girl to be my doctor. Right? And she doesn't realize no, she, that. She, she doesn't. She, she's a bright girl. She's a bright, well, she's a bright girl. I would not say <laughs> in, she's an insightful <laughs> yes, girl, yes. but she's a bright girl. So the false self is you look at everybody around you, they tell you what they want. You know, we want straight A's. We want you to be a doctor. We want you to go to Michigan like the rest of the family went to. Um, you know, there's a whole sort of set of values that are foisted on the kid regardless of who that child is. The authentic self is slow to develop. Um, it is an internal process. You can't graft a sense of self onto your child. So you have to pay close attention to who your child actually is and encourage the development of those things that the child brings out, brings to the table. So if you have a kid who likes, I'm thinking of kids in my practice, kids who don't do particularly well in school and are incredibly talented musically, uh, you can spend your day, you know, sort of excoriating them about their grades or you can join them in what they're talented in, what they're likely to end up doing. You have to make sure everybody needs to read and write and add. That's not what I'm talking about. But you allow them the time. I'm, I'm convinced that the development of the self takes time, the time that you and I used to spend laying on the bed, listening to our favorite music, looking at the ceiling. Kids don't have that. I do a lot of these 24-hour, for your listeners, if you want to see what a kid's like looks like, Draw a circle, put in the things that are mandatory, their school time, their sleep time, eating, getting dressed. You'll see that they don't have a huge chunk of time left. And if you don't make 20 minutes of that time, family time or time, we call it PDF, playtime, downtime, family time, time to consider who you are, then it's um, 
very tempting to graft onto yourself with the people around you who are only too happy to tell you who you should be are. And telling you both explicitly and implicitly. I don't know if you had seen the gal who won the slam poetry uh, contest from one of the colleges a couple um, I saw it a couple weeks ago I'm, I'm slow on the curve it could have been a year ago um, but she did a poem called The Shrinking Woman uh-huh. and she talks about uh, being across the table from her mother and learning sort of as learning to knit had been passed through the generations that she shouldn't take up too much space uh-huh. that her mother learned to not take up space right. and you know sort of how this was being taught through her you know seeing her actions of her mother rather than what was being said yeah and that's you know that's how kids learn from their parents um, we're, we're going to take a short break so we're back this is Ellie Newman with Madeline Levine we're going to talk a little bit about being average Yeah, I want to talk about being average because I think we are disproportionately paying attention to um, that small sliver of group, small sliver of kids who are academically talented. I actually think what we end up doing is greatly stressing our most academically talented kids and marginalizing the other 90% But you said it was 90%. Right, and marginalizing the rest of kids. So here's the reality. Our kids are average. and so are we. And average is okay. And and average is it's reassuring, right? Because you know in your own life that you're average. In a, you know, I can't find left from right if my life depended on it. I got a zero in math. But there are other things you're very good at. But the, right. And if and if my parents had spent all their time trying to compensate for, you know, my average math grades, I wouldn't have spent as much time reading and writing and doing the things that I really liked. So. Uh, Harvard Business Review has a very interesting study. They look at C-level people and they say, how many traits out of 16 do you need to be at the top of your company? And it turns out it's three. I was going to guess two. Yeah, it turns out it's three. And and it's a stringent requirement, 90% in the 90th percentile of your peer group. But that's about it. And when I talk to audiences and have them think about themselves in that way, they come up with three. So to expect a kid to be good at six subjects and two athletic act, it's just kind of crazy. And there aren't 16 things being tested for on the, the ERBs. No. And so I want to, in our last few minutes, talk a little bit about education. Great. And I have to start with, I noticed when I was reading The Price of Privilege that you said that clearly Summerhill was a failure. Now, I went yeah. to which to a school that was strictly modeled on Summerhill, uh-huh. and I thought a lot about it afterwards. So I wonder why she said that, and then I was looking, Googling Summerhill and see what right. people were saying about it. But I also then thought later, what was it that I got from uh-huh. that education? And I'll say my sister, you know, went there for all of, of um, elementary school. When she went back to middle school, she got most improved every at every juncture, which she loved, and ended up graduating from high school with honors and went to Harvard. And and um, I thought about, you know, what you mentioned in the book. You talk about self-efficacy and independence and a joy of learning and, and confidence in your ability to learn and actually, you know, being able to think and ask questions and be a leader and appreciate people's differences. And I just had to say that I do think that I got those things at, so, at, at Summerhill. Okay, so when I said Summerhill, this is interesting, when I said Summerhill is a failure, it shows you la- language. Um, I meant it was a failure because it did not continue and expand. So that 
economically, it became unfeasible, and the number of summer schools modeled up to Summer Hill now, I think you probably can count on one hand. And, and two, it was the 70s. I'm not sure it, it could, you know, fly now. Maybe now again it could, but, well, you know, there yeah. were a lot of odd people there. Yeah, but those were probably all creative <laughs> people. You know, they're probably doing symphonies and interesting things. But, you know, we do have Montessori. We do have Emilio Reggio. We do have uh, Waldorf schools. We do have schools that have a reasonably good understanding of the kinds of things you're talking about that do consider leadership. And we have Hampshire College. And if you look at sort of who's come out of there, even from their first class, it's Uh pretty incredible. Right. So I didn't mean that. Uh, I didn't mean your school was a failure (laughs) at all. I meant the concept. Uh, I think really had to develop um, about what it meant. And I think it's still in the process of being developed. And I actually saw when I was reading about challenge success because I thought I saw actually that must not be what she meant because the factors there are project-based learning, alternative assessment, scheduling so teens can sleep. Uh, The culture ignores, you know, what science has shown in that area, a climate of care and parent education in letting you know what you're doing. Right. So how do you see the change actually starting to take hold and come about? I mean, we don't want to blame education completely. We don't want to blame parents. We don't want to blame culture. Maybe we can blame the media a little bit. <laughs> but how does the change really start to roll? I think, unfortunately, um, the communities that have been most motivated to change are communities that have experienced tragedy. And um, I consider that terribly unfortunate. So, I, and and is that lasting even? I mean, does, I, they're does, working on it. Okay. They're working on it. And um, what they do is they bring in, and I think this is how it has to work. And it's this challenge success model. They bring in all stakeholders. So I was just at a school. Um, it's the teacher, it's the parents, it's the kids, it's the janitor, it's the head of police, it's the fireman, it's the guy who makes the sandwiches for the kids after lunch. You have to have the whole community okay. make a decision that, um, for example, I'm, I'm trying to think of an example, that um, being disrespectful is not, is not okay. So now in my own community, I can, we have a fancy little market, and I can hear a boy say to another boy, you know, she's such a hoe. And there's 20 adults around, and nobody says a word. Well, in a commu- if you're trying to change the community, you would have 20 people saying, that's not the way you talk about girls. Um, I think change will come from communities, communities, not individuals that decide to change. Uh, I also think change will come from business. And sometimes I think business has more, um, is more used to moving quickly then education, education is glacial. I mean, I th- I'm a psychologist. I thought psych- I'm still reading Freud. I thought psychology was slow. Education is like trying to, you know, turn a cruise ship around in a bathtub. It is just so difficult. Well, and if McDonald's starts buying organic beef or won't buy beef that's treated with hormones, that stops. That's right. So often, I think that that businesses who can't afford to lose, we have 25 percent of kids with a clinical diagnosis. We can't afford to lose 25 percent of all workforce. Um, the only problem with business is they tend not to bring in people on the ground. So like when I spoke at Aspen and everybody's running around with a tablet from Silicon Valley, which is kind of cool and interesting, maybe, but there were no teachers or administrators mm-hmm. there. So again, it, whatever happens is going to have to be a collaborative mood. Coming from both the top and bottom and meeting in the middle. Right. <laughs> well, thank you so much for joining me. It was a real pleasure. Thank you, Ellie. Me too. Check. 
write this today so when World War 3 starts I can look back and know what I was thinking, I was thinking, wouldn't it be nice if I could have all the people?